Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. Today you'll hear my interview with Patrick Doyle. Patrick has been working with both families and individuals suffering from substance use disorders, depression, and other behavioral health disorders for 30 years. He earned a Master's of Social Work in 1986 from Boston College. He's a licensed independent clinical social worker in Massachusetts. Patrick follows the National Association of Social Work Code of Ethics. And now he's offering to help families whose loved ones are struggling with addiction-related problems as well. The practical and down-to-earth principles that Patrick has acquired as a social worker make him uniquely qualified to offer help to entire families, including people who themselves are struggling with addiction. Today, he and I discuss what those skills are exactly and how he helps people beat addiction by activating motivation in their lives, finding healthy rewards, a sense of purpose, and by living generally more balanced lives. And then we also discussed effective ways of helping family members of those struggling with addiction. And Patrick kindly shares his own life story as a way into all of this. Before diving headfirst into episode 51, we do want to remind you that our podcast is ad-free. We welcome donations from listeners like you, both at our PayPal link and through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the social exchange. Consider making a donation of $2 and becoming a patron. And thank you so much to those of you who have done so already. Specifically, thanks to Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris L., Leanne Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Chris Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Rick Barnett, Anne M., Earl, Inigo, John, Layla, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Tim Tucker, Christian, Thomas Rhodes, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, Sue Matthew, and Linda Rhodes. Again, if you'd like to become a patron and support our show for $2 or more a month, go to patreon.com slash the social exchange. Now enjoy episode number 51 of the social exchange podcast. I'm here with Patrick Doyle. Patrick, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Zach. Appreciate it. People will have already heard you're a, a family addiction coach. You're a social worker by trade and, and many more things. I'm I want to get into family dynamics with you, and I want to talk about what your work is like as a family addiction coach, as well as your educational content that you put out and your podcast and a myriad of things that you're doing right now. Before we do that, can we get into a little bit of your background and and how you became interested in in addictions? Absolutely. Uh, To make a long story boring. uh, (laughs) That's what they want uh, to hear. Yeah. That'll glue the listeners. That's right. Yeah. So here's how you can subscribe. <laughs> uh, I, I was I basically I was raised in a, a a very loving family, a lot of kids. I'm fifth out of seven children, and so there's a lot of stress when you have that many kids you're trying to raise. And um, so it was a loving family, but it was also a high stress family mm. a lot of the times. Basically, my parents. I know my parents loved us. I realized that more as the years went on. However, when I was a child, I didn't get it. And so it was a high stress environment. Discipline could get a bit harsh at times. For example, children were seen and not heard kind of thing. So by the time I I became a teenager, didn't really feel like I was prepared to deal with emotions, uh, social relationships. I had a lot of difficulties there and 
um, basically was uh, depressed my, during my teen years, a lot of conflict in the family that I was witnessing, and got into uh, therapy myself, uh, counseling support for depression at somewhere around age 19 or so, and it, it just saved me. It, it saved me so completely that I just really was attracted to the whole idea of going into the field myself. So, mm. so I'm in recovery from depression. And uh, as I've worked in the field, got my master's in social work and always worked in mental health and addictions, particularly with my maturation, I hearken back to my childhood. And I think, you know, I wish my family could have gotten help back then and if we had gotten some sort of professional help or support or understanding, uh, it could have been so much easier and the impact on us children uh, would have been less. And so uh, at this point in my life, it's, it's so clear to me that families, especially when there's addiction or serious depression or a lot of stress, they really need help. And so my mission has become to support families dealing with addiction in particular. And I feel like I'm giving back something that I wish I could have gotten when I was a child. And uh, so it, it's, it's real important to me. And, um, and I can relate with the families. And in doing the coaching work that I do, it's interesting. I become a part of the family with the families that I work with over a period of time. And uh, it, that's really cool. It can become really powerful. Sounds like you so understand that you would have benefited from help, you and your family, when you were growing up, that you're eager to give back. What kind of things specifically would have helped your family dynamics and, and you as a person? It would have been great to have some sort of family therapy of some type. Now, how you get nine people to attend a family therapy session, you know, that, that could be a challenge. But to have some professional help, my parents definitely could have used guidance on child rearing, on how to motivate children to um, want to do the right thing, that, you know, you don't have to use harsh discipline to get, you know, kids to do the right kind of thing. And, and you know, the power of positive thinking and positive communications, you know, believing in your kids and supporting them. So, you know, and, and open communication that would have been really helpful. And uh, for me as a child growing up, I thought that there was something seriously wrong with me. I didn't think I'd live to the age of 21. Not mm -hmm. that I didn't want to live to age 21. I, I just remember as a child, I remember I couldn't imagine that I would survive, you know? Um, and some sort of support and education that, um, that adolescence is hard for most adolescents, but I never knew that at the time. So I just felt like, I, I felt like, you know, an, a bit of an outcast and like there was something wrong with me. And there really wasn't anything wrong with me that is unusual for the time. And that's one of the interesting things about becoming a therapist is that you get to, as you hear people's stories, as you hear, as you hear your clients' stories, you learn so much. And you learn that uh, depression, anxiety, substance use, stress, so many things that I didn't understand at the time are really are just part of the human condition. And, and that's really helped in terms of my recovery and um, 
coming to terms with my experiences and being able to appreciate more about my experiences. And I think something on conflict management for my family could have done a lot of good as well. Conflict management, you know, you hear that a lot now, but 45, 50 years ago, I don't think anybody even used that term. I mean, counseling was different back then, but uh, if we could have had some help in managing disagreements, differences, that kind of thing, without, you know, getting into a fight or an argument, that would have been useful. Does conflict management, do you mean uh, working out disagreements in some sort of negotiable way? Not negotiation like splitting the difference, but negotiation like everybody getting something that they want and being heard? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And also, when we think about conflict, oftentimes we, it seems to carry a negative connotation. Yeah. Like, like conflict is bad. And the way that I look at it, conflict is great. Because conflict is real. You know, everybody's an individual, unique. Nobody's exactly alike. And everybody's got a different perspective. So to not have a difference or a disagreement or different perspective or point of view, it's just not being real. So um, I'm a big fan of open conflict and in a healthy sense. I think conflict is healthy. It's part of life. And if you don't get into the conflict and if you don't learn how to manage that and do it in a constructive way, you're really at a loss, you know, making mm -hmm. your way through life. It, you can't avoid conflict. So trying to preach to somebody that they ought to avoid conflict at all costs, or that there's some magical way to avoid it that's perhaps uh, doing more harm than good. Rather, you're saying lean into conflict and figure out what it means, who's communicating what. Yeah, exactly. We, it's generally pretty easy to see in workplaces. And if you've ever worked in a workplace where, I mean, some of them are open to conflict, differences, and leadership wants to hear from staff, it's okay to have a disagreement. And uh, people in authority want to hear different points of view, and they want to do the right thing. They understand that the more satisfaction employees or staff get in a workplace, the smoother the operation is going to run. Mm. Uh, and then there are other types of workplaces that are very top-down, authoritative, authoritarian. And it's not a safe place to bring up a concern or to present another point of view or to make a suggestion kind of thing. And it, it, they're, not, they're not open to conflict. They're, they don't see conflict as healthy and as contributing to the overall health and functioning of the organization. When it comes to families, and you're, you're making the analogous point about a workplace, how do you see hierarchies working in families? And how do you resolve that with the, the idea that sort of your first point about the kind of management in a workplace that understands that employees and people in an organization need to be feeling okay. And so it's, there's more than just laying down the law from a, a top administrator. There's There's also just making sure that there's um, I that conflict among employees and employers is healthy, as opposed to a hierarchical structure where the person at the top says, these are the rules, and we're going to be watching to make sure that everybody's following them. Um, relate yeah. that to, to family dynamics, and what's the balance that you like to see struck between you know, families having some semblance of order and also being collaborative? With families, it's challenging. And, and I've got a couple of kids myself, a daughter who's 28 and a son who's 33, 
years old. So going through that experience as a parent, what you learn is that the older your kids get, the less effective it is as a parent to lay down the law, to impose rules, tell them what to do as they get older. And what's interesting is that um, I know you're a big fan of the whole concept of harm reduction in, the, in, in with addiction and, and substance use, and me as well. What's fascinating is that I've started to look at my kids from a concept of harm reduction. With harm reduction as a parent, it's helped me to support my kids' independence. When we practice harm reduction in with people who are using substances that might be problematic, yeah. we are trying to reach out to them and support them in a way that they find supportive. We're not asking anything of them. We're offering support, love, uh, maybe financial assistance, but we're not expecting anything out of them. And we're encouraging them to make their best decision. That kind of approach, what I've found for me as a parent, has just, it's liberated me from feeling overly responsible for decisions that my kids make now that they're adults. Mm -hmm. And it lets me be more of a, a support and it takes me out of a position of having feeling like I've got to make things right for them. It's not for most parents, it's not really a control kind of thing, but we want to spare our kids grief. You know, we want to spare them pain. We want to see them do well. And uh, it's a natural loving parent approach. And yet we, we have to understand that we have to encourage them to make their own decisions. Sometimes my kids will come to me and they'll tell me what their latest idea is. And to myself, I'm thinking, oh my God, are, are you serious? You're going to do what kind of thing? But the approach I've learned is, you know, I love you, Mike. It sounds a little out of the blue. I hadn't really thought about that in your future. But I got to tell you, I, I love you. And I trust that you will make the best decisions for yourself, you know, whether I can understand it or not. So as long as you believe in yourself, if that's what you want to pursue, then go for it, man. And, and I believe that you'll be successful. You'll land on your feet somehow. For me, that's really worked out well. And it, it allows me to not worry as much about them and to have really cool discussions and conversations with both of my kids and to be able to say that I believe in you and I know you won't give up on yourself and you will find your way in life. When I say that to them, I mean, my kids love it, you know, I mean, who wouldn't as a kid, you know? Sure. So, it, and so we, it's like we're developing a relationship of, um, it, it's, it's definitely support and love, but I'm not the boss of them anymore. And so it's their life. And uh, so it allows me to be very supportive of them, even if some of their ideas or decisions might seem like a little, uh, you know, going out on a limb. I, I, I was going to say risky, but it's not really risky. It's more like taking a chance, uh, you know, going out on a limb, that kind of thing. Right. Doing something that makes that actually makes sense. Maybe it would be more of a risk to them not to do it, but, but I see what you mean. There's still that element of chance or having faith that this thing's going to work out. Exactly. Like 
resigning from a job when you don't have another job to go to, for example, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it's I'm like putting myself <laughs> in your shoes right now. And, and you seem, you're a very patient guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, practice, 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 Zach. And uh, seriously, because I'll have these conversations with my kids and, and I love them and I love how they feel that they can talk to me no matter what they have to say. And to me as a father, that's the best I can hope for. My friend Robert Schwabel has a term for this, and I'm jealous of the coinage because it's so obvious that I feel like I should have thought of that, but he calls it uh, the transference of power. You know, your kids grow up and you're sort of pulling back on you being the person to instill something in your kids directly, and you're beginning to have negotiations. So instead of, I need you to do this, it's more like, tell me more about why you want to do this. And And you're getting your family members, kids, whomever, to think out loud perhaps, or at least to think so they can talk out for themselves and, and articulate the kind of decisions they're making. But then at the same time, you're not pulling from that bank of compassion that you have either. You want to maintain that level of compassion. And that's about the right amount when you're parenting, as you say, the people who are, you might call them micromanagers of their kids' lives. You're noticing that that even that comes from a place of compassion, wanting to keep your kids safe and well. I think of it as being an observer of, of their journey, their life journey. I'm an observer. I'm, I'm close to them, but I'm really, I'm a, I participate in it to, to a huge degree as well, but I'm more of an observer and I want them to, I mean, I'm fascinated. I've always been fascinated with what makes people tick, you know, what makes especially like what kind of careers and jobs that people choose. Because I, I, I didn't understand that for myself for so long. But it's like I'm fascinated hearing people's stories mm. and how they make these decisions. What, how did they get into this? How did, they ha- how did they end up there? And I find that stuff fascinating. And so with, I apply it to, you know, my relationship with my kids is to, you know, I try to understand their motivations, their values, what's important to them. And for both of my kids, being happy in general is a very, very strong value. Mm. And when I think of myself and my generation growing up, happiness is, it wasn't quite at the top of the list. More was taking care of business, paying the bills, being where you're supposed to be, (laughs) when you're supposed to be there, that kind of thing. But both of my kids, they have more of a free spirit and they they place a higher value on their personal happiness and i think that's a good thing i think that's a really good thing i think so too i mean the things that you were talking about you remembering valuing get you to a point of indifference maybe i mean you want to get north of that if you're going to be ultimately happy i mean i'm not saying that not to value practical conscientious type things but at the yeah. end of the day if you can attain all of those then what and it sounds like your kids are exploring yeah. the, the then what. Yeah, exactly. And uh-huh. along those lines, I learned that my kids love to hear about me. And, and I don't think a lot of parents, no matter how old they get, I don't think a lot of them talk to their kids about who they are themselves mm-hmm. and share what their dreams are with their feelings and, or to share pieces of their childhood with their kids. My yes. kids love to hear about me and especially about my childhood and what things were like when I was growing up. And they, they are absolutely fascinated with it. 
in so I've, I've used that storytelling as a way of bonding with them, for example, about career and about making job decisions. And I'm very clear that uh, I'm passionate about my, my mission and, and working with families and such. Um, but in terms of like what kind of job, what kind of setting kind of thing, a lot of it's a crapshoot and I don't have all the answers. And there's a lot that I continue to struggle with about, you know, the world of work and, you know, paying bills and earning a living kind of thing. Uh, so I share that with them and I, I let them know what it's like for me. And I mean, sometimes jobs are boring, <laughs> you know, sometimes, it, I mean, even a job that you love, sometimes you, you go to work and, you're thinking, wow, I don't want to be here. You know, I'd, I'd rather be somewhere else kind of thing. I'm just not into it today, you know, even if it's just for one day. But so I shared that. And I found that the more real I am with my kids in admitting, you know, things that might go against the grain of traditional parenting, they love that. And, and I love it, too, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just being real with them. So I don't have to be... I'm a, I'm a role model, yes, but I don't have to be a role model of perfection. I can be a role model of being true to myself, uh, being genuine, being open, honest, and fully admitting that I don't have all the answers for, for anybody, including myself. Now, I'd like to juxtapose this philosophy that you're talking about with the work that you do with other families. And before I do that, I actually, I'm interested in, you said that you sought and received therapy when you were 19 to was it 19 yeah yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. now now your kids are 28 and 32 and so you're sort of still incorporating the things that you've gained from therapy into those kinds of relationships how did you go from 19 year old who's now figuring out that there's something to look forward to and be optimistic about to an adult who with a career and who is in the helping profession at age 19, I was in universities going for my last year of a bachelor's degree in biology. I knew I didn't like lab work. And so, I mean, I was fascinated with biology, but I didn't like lab work. And so I got to the point where, I mean, I just couldn't keep it together. You can't go to class if, you're, if you can't stop crying, you know? So, so it became pretty clear that I needed to take some time off. Uh, got into counseling. I was so fortunate to get in the hands of a really skilled psychiatrist, really skilled therapist, um, who I worked with for a long time. And it, 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 he helped me get into a recovery from depression. And the power of that and experiencing that myself, it, it, just, it just blew me away. I mean, all of a sudden, I had hope for the future. I had self-confidence. I had optimism, um, and I I had I could believe in myself, and so that kind of transformation that started with the therapy it, it just blew me away, and I thought wow, and here's this person in this process that has been so helpful to me. Maybe I could do this for others, mm. and and I've been there. Um, maybe that could be helpful. So I um, finished up my degree with a minor in psychology, was interested in seeing what it would be like to work with people professionally in the helping profession, got a job on an inpatient psychiatric unit, 
which happened to be an excellent program. It was really dual diagnosis because in addition to psychiatry, they also treated addiction, which was a great learning experience for me. And it, it, it just, I got the bug when I was working there. And again, it was, I, I love to help people. I saw that I had a knack for helping people. And I, I was so mesmerized in hearing about their stories, their life stories, that it, was, it became clear that this is the, the thing for me. I tried to get into medical school. I didn't have the chemistry grades to get into med school. So social work was a backup and got into a great program. And one of my internships was at McLean Hospital, actually in Belmont, Massachusetts. McLean Hospital, it's a great program for mental health. And I was on the uh, drug addiction unit and alcohol addiction unit that they had just merged. And, uh, and it was primarily dual diagnosis, but really high quality treatment. And part of basically being a social work intern on the residential unit, I interviewed the families of the patients. And it was an expectation of that program that a, a, a family that was local participate and meet with the social worker once a week and that there was a lot of communication back and forth. So that's where I got my training and I saw the power of that and the importance of that role as the social worker in the treatment team with nurses, counselors, psychiatrists. But the family participation was just so useful and so helpful uh, to the patients. And then the families also needed support sometimes and professional help themselves sometimes. So I, I just saw the power of lives being transformed, recovery gained, health gained. And it's just been a thrill for me uh, ever since. I mean, even to this day, every time I talk to a person on the phone who's looking for professional help, I always make sure that I say, thanks for calling in. This is a great outreach for you to reach out for professional help is great self-care. So I want to commend you for practicing great self-care and encourage you to keep that up because it does pay off. So it's, it's a privilege to speak to you. So now I've just incorporated that into every conversation that I have with a new person looking for help. And it's interesting, the reactions that I get on the phone. One time recently, somebody said, thanks for not judging me. And, and that was so powerful. But to hear that person on the phone say, thanks for not judging me. I thought, oh, why would I judge you for having a medical illness? But I appreciate you saying that. And I'm glad that you had a positive experience. Blew me away. And first that that person is used to judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with all the stigma attached to addiction and mental health issues, when, when people do reach out, they're usually not going to say, you know, this is really hard for me to bring up. But I think I might need some kind of help because of the stigma and the fear and the shame. So it's as a clinician, it's so easy to uh, get removed from that experience and to forget about how uh, difficult it is for people to ask for help and, and what a responsibility we have to respect that and to give a lot of positive feedback to that person and to identify and draw it out because they don't, they don't realize that they're being strong, you know, for the, especially that first time they reach out, they're filled with shame and they feel weak. So they need to be taught that 
this is, it doesn't matter what you did the past five years. The only thing that matters is what you're doing right now. And for right now, you're the strongest person around mm. and because you're reaching out and you're taking, you know, showing that vulnerability. So good for you. That's good stuff. So that's, that tells me that you have it in you and that you're not going to give up on yourself. You make a distinction between social work as a broad field and the family coaching that you do. Uh, describe that distinction. The coaching that I'm doing is pretty unique. I don't know of anybody else who's doing it, to tell you the truth. Um, and social work is a field, I mean, it's interesting. Social work is a field, it, it, they work with a lot of different kind of populations, but my observation is that they haven't really embraced addiction as I think they need to. They've, they've embraced mental health issues, they've embraced poverty, racism, a lot of things that are, are important, but they haven't really embraced addiction. And you don't see a lot of social workers passionate about working with addiction. So that would be a contrast, I would say. Now, the coaching model, it lends itself so well to working with families. Being a coach is different from being a psychotherapist in the sense that I can be more of a real person as a coach. Right much less formal. I can talk about my family with my coaching families, and I do. And they, they like it. They love to hear, what, you know, if I had a success or a failure with my families. As a psychotherapist, you know, we're taught and trained to keep that stuff out of the picture. Don't distract away from the client or the family. So, Coaching, what I love about it is that it allows me to be a real person and to be genuine, sometimes share part of my personal background if it's in the service of helping that family. And th that kind of flexibility is very powerful and works well. And it works really well, particularly with addiction, where people respond better to that genuine, authentic, real person kind of approach where, where I may share some of my background and my experiences with them, they respond very well to it. So that's something, that's a difference with what I'm doing. Another thing that I would say separates out what I'm doing from a lot of family coaching out there is that I'm a professional with professional training, licensure, and experience. The National Association of Social Workers has a code of ethics. I've got to uphold the code of ethics. I can't have any conflicts of interests, or if I do, I have to be very open about that. I can't take advantage of people for my own personal gain, basically. And with the treatment industry and with patient brokers out there, there's so much money being made off of addiction. What is it, $35 billion a year? It's hard to get objective information an objective assistance in trying, for example, trying to find an appropriate treatment approach or treatment program. It's really hard to get it. Uh, a lot of people out there, they won't tell people who call them that they're actually employed by treatment centers where they are encouraging these people to go sure. and they're earning money off of that or that they get a kickback for the referral. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of peer support out there uh, for families, or it's starting to develop peer support. Of, for example, parents who have been through addiction and 
uh, are, they have a certain amount of training and they're offering support to other parents who are still in the thick of it. And I think that can be really positive, really helpful. There's nothing like peer assistance. Nothing can take the place of that. Um, yet I think it also has some limitations. And so with my background and experience training, it, it, I can bring a lot to the table. I understand about boundaries real clearly. I understand about empowering people and not making decisions for them. I understand about the so many pathways to recovery and that, and that I don't know it all. Um, and some decisions are just plain hard to make about what a family should do. And I don't pretend to know it. Unfortunately, there's a, there's, there are a lot of people out there that will give advice to suffering families that it's not grounded. It's not grounded in science and it's not particularly helpful for the family. It might be just plain bad advice. And so there's still that that uh, is, is largely out there. And I, I tell people about my background and I've got a code of ethics that I have to follow. Um, but if somebody has a, a real concern about my professionalism or the quality of my services, they've got recourse. You know, they can file a complaint with the, the licensing board for social workers, um, things like that. You don't get a lot of that kind of consumer protection out there in in this field you're able to incorporate the things that are valuable about peer-to-peer interaction because you can be a real person yet you have to follow a code of ethics of a professional in the field and you're uh, making the distinction between that benefit and what is obviously an unscrupulous network of drug addiction therapies out there you know it's difficult to to parse the wheat from the chaff when am I getting ripped off and when am I not? It's an interesting yeah. and worthwhile model. I'm curious, before I get into some possible success stories of you working with families, which uh, if people tune into your podcast, they can also hear. Did you ever feel like you were limping into this coaching gig? Did you ever have uh, families that you worked with that you felt like you weren't successful or or you were you know, a, a less than adequate person to be working with them? Or was it always sort of natural for you? I would say there's um, there's definitely some families that are starting to work with them. Actually, actually, to be honest, Zach, every time I start working with a family, I'm both excited and also a bit um, apprehensive, mm. a bit anxious, um, because I consider it such a responsibility. Sure. And and they're the they're I mean these are matters of life and death to so to help a family come to terms with that and to under understand the limitations of my role of, or what anybody can advise them this that's a big responsibility and i i expect a lot of out of myself so when i when i start working with a family it's, it's both exciting and also i'm trying real hard to assess the situation correctly and to um, avoid giving premature advice, but rather to l- help them look at their options and help them evaluate the pros and cons of options. And and then as I get to know the family over time, oftentimes it, it just starts feeling more comfortable. They understand 
the coaching process after you know a few sessions we always start off with goals for the sessions what do they want to accomplish what can they take away from this session that will leave them feeling like this was time well spent so i'm always going back to them asking them what their goals are what they want to accomplish and they usually don't know but it's it's still an important exercise to do and so as as i work continue to work with them over time we uh, get this real comfort level and we, we, I get feedback from the families. It's the service is helping. I'm feeling better. I'm feeling less stressed kind of thing. On occasion, I might run into a family that is, they either have a specific need that I cannot fulfill, background or expertise area that I may not be able to fulfill. Or sometimes, uh, and I have run into this quite often, sometimes there's a family or maybe a family member and they're looking for black or white, um, this way or that way. They're looking for definitive guidance and answers. And that's one thing that I won't do. I'm very careful. I'm, I'm a very nuanced kind of person. And I want to make sure that I take into account a lot of different factors. And so, and there are no right or wrong answers for a lot of the questions that families have. So part of the process of recovery for them is to get some help in recognizing that there's not a a right or wrong approach, but whatever they decide is most comfortable, that's what's going to tend to work out best. So working in gray areas, uh, in between extremes, um, taking time, some families don't respond well to that. They want something that is clear cut and they want an answer quickly. I don't, I'll do my best, but that's not the kind of work that I do best. And so I, I may tell them that and, uh, for example, if somebody wants an interventionist uh, based on the Johnson model of intervention, where you basically um, meet with a person with a addiction in a hotel room family, and basically you say, if you don't go to treatment right now, I'm going to withdraw my financial support. I'm not going to talk to you, whatever. And basically it's a, there can be deception and coercion in that kind of approach Somebody wants an interventionist to strong arm someone into treatment. I'm not their guy. And I won't, I won't try to be, but I'll refer them to interventionists. And I know some interventionists that I have a lot of respect for. And I think they, they can help a lot of people. And I think when it comes to like a life or death situation, that's the way to go. I, I, it's not something that I'm, it's not my strong suit, you know? What you're trying to do for people is laying out their options on a table and allowing people to articulate it so that all members involved can understand it. Telling people that that's what the goal is for you and then asking them their respective goals that that eliminates the worry or the harms associated with uh, giving definitive information to somebody or advice and and that going sour. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you mentioned uh, getting families together. One of the great things about coaching over the phone is that you can have, you can arrange a conference call with 10, 11, 12 people in different parts of the country. And we've done that. And there's no other way to have a family meeting except through that route. I mean, you're not going to meet in the same place. 
And so we can, by doing that, we can bring everybody in the extended family up to speed with the information that each of us has about the, the risk of the, the addiction with this particular, their loved one and what the options are, we can come to a consensus and a, a unified approach that each person, each of those 10 people are going to use the same kind of approach. And then we also say, well, who can do what? What kind of support do any of you feel that you're up to providing? And what would that look like? So you get some people say, well, I can go and visit this person. I can, or some people say, I can give them a call, see how they're doing kind of thing. And basically, I, I, a lot of it is teaching about harm reduction. And if you, if you want to still have a relationship with this person, regardless of whether they choose to accept professional help or not, there's a way that you can do it. If your loved one had AIDS and was refusing AIDS treatment, would you turn your back on them? Would you kick them out of the house? Would you wait for them to hit bottom? Obviously, no. So, okay, you don't have to do that here. And drawing analogies like that for people can, it just like, you hear the sighs of relief. They say, you're right. That makes sense. I don't want to ignore my son, even though he's not accepting treatment and I'm concerned about his drinking. I still want to have a relationship with him. And I said, and I say, there's your answer. I encourage you to do that. What's the best outcome you can remember having to date with respect to family coaching? One particular family that I've been working with for uh, more than two years and concern over uh, an adult son who um, is still drinking, but during the course of two years, when I started working with the family, um, the the son's therapist invited me in to work with the parents. Uh, because they had a lot of questions about they were financially supporting the son. Was that good or was that enabling? Um, So I started working with the the parents and we, whereas initially there was a real abstinence focused, uh, the family was trying to get the son to stop drinking and they were trying to get him into a residential treatment program for abstinence and the son would have nothing to do with it. So it's like they were at a um, impasse. And so over a period of time, we uh, worked, they also called in an interventionist for support, which was useful um, on several occasions uh, because the son would get himself into dangerous situations and it was good to have somebody able to go out there in the community and track him down and and help him get into uh, an emergency room. so the family, uh, the family recovery was basically coming to terms with accepting the son's need to make those decisions for himself about his use of alcohol and to find some way to still have a relationship, um, still be available to him, um, yet they, they didn't want it to ruin their lives, um, and they, they were tired of being so filled with worry. And so uh, with the parents, uh, they're, they're in a great place now. And we, we recently had a, a family meeting with the son and the parents, and it was really productive. 
one of the things that came up was that the son said how impressed he was with his mother's setting better boundaries and setting limits on him. For example, when he called up intoxicated, the mother was saying, I'm not going to talk to you while you're drinking, and she would hang up on him. That was hard for her to learn how to do that. But what he said in the family was, you know, I've learned from you setting that limit on me, and you are right to do that. It's not respectful for me to call you when I've been drinking to talk about what's at the movies these days. And I've been incorporating that in my own life to try to set limits on negativity around me. So what was fascinating is that the mother hanging up on him was something that he was able to recognize as healthy boundaries and limit setting. And he was starting to practice that in his own life as an individual. And it was, um, it was so powerful to hear that. Um, and the mother had no idea that she was in setting limits and, and boundaries and taking care of herself, that kind of self-care she was practicing. She had no idea that it was an inspiration for her son. Very powerful. I found that, you know, some of the best connective moments between people, not just families, but between people in general, are those moments that, that show that, you know, it's not just being nice that makes two people connected. It's more like, can you deliver the goods? This person could be a mother, set boundaries and say, this is not what being your mother in a healthy way looks like, you calling me and whatever you said, you know, talking about latest movies up when you're, when you're drinking. Yeah. But being your mother means... I take care of myself and I make sure that people around me aren't abusing that self-care and I love you. I'm your mother and I want to be your mother and you have to take some responsibility in that. That consistency, I, I just think is so worthwhile and evidently true in your case. And it sounds like just that sort of communication and your help has been a boon in that family's life. That, that's exactly it, Zach. And it, for the mom, her struggle was to give herself permission to hang up the phone on him. And it, because she was always worried, oh no, you know, is he going to drink himself to death tonight? So a lot of it was her struggle with accepting that risk that is there and yet also allowing her to take care of herself and so that she can make choices and that she doesn't have to be held hostage by those risks. So for her to learn and accept that that was a healthy move on her part, that was just liberating for her. Patrick, it's been awesome talking to you. And one thing I noticed is you give some of your best ideas away for free. You do have a site <laughs> and it, I would imagine that it's encouraging for people when they, when they see the work that you're up to, you know, if they're in the position where a service like yours would be valuable, I could see why uh, they would turn to you. Can you tell people how to access your work and, and learn more about you and the things you're doing and your ideas? Yeah, well, the website is www.familyaddictioncoach.com. A lot of information on the website. There are podcasts. We've started a podcast series. We have three episodes out already, um, and it's called Family Addiction Coaching Podcast. Um, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Google, 
Stitcher, et cetera. It's also on my website. Um, the, and the, there's blogs that I have written on the site. But I got to admit, Zach, I love podcasting. And All right, um, you drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. And yeah, it's all self-taught, homeschooling. So it hasn't been easy, yeah. but um, so rewarding in interviewing families and individuals. And um, got a couple, another couple of episodes about to be launched. They're going to be launched this week. I promise you, my friend, they will be launched <laughs> this week. Um, and I had the pleasure of being interviewed on by a couple of great guys on the Health Professionals in Recovery podcast, right. Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Um, and they interviewed me. Um, and then uh, I asked if they would interview me about coaching. So we've got another uh, episode where they are interviewing about coaching. And what's really fascinating is that they share their stories relative to certain aspects of, of the family coaching that I'm talking about. And they talk about their own experience um, and how if their families had been able to get this kind of help, they think it really would have been useful um, when you know they were in active use or early recovery. So they're fascinating ep episodes, uh, really excited about those. And we're reorganizing the website to make it more concise and clear. So that's the, um, it, people can make a, a web request to me. My phone number is on there as well. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Yeah, you're active on social media too. That's how I bumped into you. I don't know if that's right. uh, something yeah. you'd be eager to share or not. We can do whatever. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Twitter, I got Twitter. Zach has been profoundly useful for me in terms of learning about, for example, harm reduction. Uh, where I wouldn't have learned about harm reduction if it wasn't for the the group of people like you, Zach, and others who are doing such great work in this field uh, on Twitter and, you know, and your podcast, putting that out there. Uh, and so that's how I've, I've learned more from those Twitter connections over the past three years than I have in the entire 30 years before that using more, you know, traditional school and journals kind of thing. I found this core group of dedicated enlightened professionals, people in recovery, advocates, uh, that it's, I mean, the information and the support. I've, I've made friends on Twitter, um, most of whom I've never met in person, but there's a lot of support there. And so for me, it's been, it's, it's, it's not only changed my career and, and helped me be better, but it's, it's changed my life. It, it's made my life better. So it's really been a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, I'm on there a lot. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to be careful, but um, I'm on there as much as I can be. And just some really cool people. Um, one of them, uh, I've become a good friend at Rebel Eclectic. She's Amanda. She's helping me work on my website now, and she's helping me with my podcasts, and she's really gifted at graphics, uh, graphic design, but also promotion and marketing and getting word out to customers about what the service is so that they, the ones who could use it, they'll identify it 
right away. The ones who don't, they don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. she's been helpful. Well, I'll link to all those things in the show notes. And thank you for the kind words, by the way. And I just want to let folks who are listening know that um, you might think it would be an awkward thing to say, given that I do a similar service. So wouldn't Patrick be then taking people away from me? And I, I don't think so. I think not that you need it, but you have my stamp of approval. I think that the ideas that you have and the ways in which you work with people, the, the whole person, and the way that you're genuine about it, you know, you don't pretend to have answers that you don't have and you're compassionate and you're understanding. And it seems like it's just pretty natural to you too. I mean, you're a professional and you've learned some tricks along the way for sure, but it's, it's just a natural vibe that I get from you. So I do recommend that people check out the site, see if, if you have some sort of dynamics that you're looking to, you know, learn more about or understand better or, or even things that you're looking to ameliorate, I recommend that people check out Patrick's site. So Patrick Doyle, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you, Zach. And I, I want to tell you, I mean, getting your endorsement, your support like that, uh, that means more than words can say. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon.